The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? You doing good? Wow, well, happy October. Can you believe it's October already? It's October. It's starting to feel like October. Don't you like this cooler weather? I do. I love it. I love the cooler weather. I think we've got a few more hot days in, in store, but I love the cooler weather. Well, welcome to Story City. We're glad you're here. My name is Matt. I'm excited this morning to open up the scriptures with you. If you happen to bring a Bible, we're in the, in the book of Luke chapter 6 this morning. Luke chapter 6 this morning, and we're in the eighth week of a series that we've entitled Unusual Suspects, Unusual Suspects. And so next week we land the plane, we finish in Luke chapter 6 next week, and then we'll begin a new series a couple weeks from now. And uh, this has been a really, really good series, but in catching a glimpse of the types of people that Jesus has called to himself, the types of people that Jesus is drawing to himself, and uh, it's been good to open up the scriptures together. So Luke chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 1 this morning. If you happen to bring a Bible, go ahead and open it up, turn on, turn it to Luke chapter 6 this morning. We're going to put the scripture on the screen if you didn't happen to bring a Bible, and if we can get the lights up on the stage just a little bit. Let me pray for us. We're going to dive into the scriptures this morning. Lord, thank you for today. God, you're good and kind and gracious to us, Lord. I pray as we open up the scriptures today, Lord, the loudest voice we hear is the words that we read from scripture. And God, speak to us greatly, Lord. We don't need another religious experience this morning. We need to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said amen and amen. Um, I'm from Atlanta. A lot of you guys know that. We moved here four and a half years ago, a little over four and a half years ago. Near the town where we lived in was a town called Kennesaw. And Kennesaw had this this really wacky, loony law. Uh, It was just crazy. The first time I heard it, I was like, sure, that that can't be true, right? And no, it is true. And the law was, everybody who lived in Kennesaw and owned a home was required to also own a firearm. And so for some of you, you're like, I can't believe it. No, but but that is Georgia. So welcome to Georgia. And, but it's still kind of a crazy law. And so as I'm opening up this passage this morning, if we get the lights up on the stage just a little bit, um, as I'm opening up the passage this morning, I'm thinking about these loony laws. And so I I don't know if you guys have ever heard of these kind of crazy laws um, around the country. Let me read a couple crazy laws. When you you hear these, uh, you're going to kind of laugh at them. Did you know in Harper Woods, Michigan, it's illegal to paint a sparrow and sell it as a parakeet? (laughs) That's kind of crazy. In Wisconsin, there's a law that says you cannot serve pie in public without also serving cheese with it. Makes sense. It's Wisconsin, right? Some of you guys are from Wisconsin. In Vermont, I broke this law when I used to swim on the swim team. In Vermont, it's illegal to whistle underwater. It's illegal to whistle underwater in Vermont. It's crazy. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, get this. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, you need a licensed engineer to open a soda bottle. A licensed engineer to open a soda ball. Also, it's illegal in Tulsa, Oklahoma to kiss for more than three minutes consecutively. That's crazy. We were telling our kids this last night, and my son was like, oh, you guys would definitely go to prison. And so I'm like, yes, we would. In Hood River, Hood River, Oregon, sorry, in Hood River, Oregon, you need a license to juggle. You need a license to juggle in Hood River, Oregon. In Connecticut, a a pickle must bounce in order to be considered a pickle. That's kind of crazy. In Iowa, there's, now check this out. This is really unfair. I don't know whoever came up with this law. In Iowa, there's a law that says if you are a one-armed piano player, you must perform for free. Come on now. That's just not fair. That's not fair. 
in Wyoming, you cannot take a picture of a rabbit during the month of June. I don't know. In Georgia, let's finish with Georgia. In Georgia, my home state of Georgia. In Georgia, if you keep a donkey in a bathtub, you might be arrested, all right? If you keep a donkey in a bathtub in Georgia, you might be arrested. Crazy laws, loony laws. You can imagine, whatever, whether these are still laws on the books today, surely these laws are, are laws that are, are no longer enforced today. When we come to Luke chapter six this morning, we see kind of a, a crazy law. It wasn't always crazy. It was a law that was commanded by God. In fact, we see it in the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20. It was a good law. It, it, was, a, it was a just law. It was a, it was a good thing for humanity, but the law became crazy. And the reason why it became crazy was because man got involved. Man got involved with the law that God created that was good for us and we tried to improve on God's law and it just became crazy. It was a practical law. It was good for us. God intended it to be good for us, but somehow man got involved. We turned it upside down. We twisted it into something God never intended for it to be. We made it impractical and impossible to obey. And so Jesus shows up in Luke chapter six. Jesus shows up here in this passage this morning and he brings us back to the original intent for the law that he gave. He doesn't do away with the law, but he brings us back. He points out why the law was given in the first place. So you're wondering what that law is. Let's read together. Luke chapter six, starting in verse one. This is what the scripture says. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And his disciples began to pick some heads of grain and they would rub them in their hands and then they would eat the kernels. Verse two, some of the Pharisees ask Jesus, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So the law is the Sabbath, it's the context here, it's simply the platform for which Jesus is gonna teach on a broader issue. But in order to understand what's happening here, we need to understand a little bit about the Sabbath. We need to have some background on the Sabbath. So the Sabbath day was initially the seventh day of the week, or Saturday. In the scriptures, it was Saturday. In seven days of creation, God rested on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day. And so in Exodus chapter 20, in Exodus chapter 20, what happens is we learn that since God rested from his work on the Sabbath, he wanted us to also take a rest as well. And so the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, in the 10 commandments, the fourth commandment was that there was no work to be done on the Sabbath day. It's a great principle, an incredible principle. It's a worthy principle. It's a great practice to develop. It's just wise and good to Sabbath one day a week. But the Jews took the command that Jesus gave us, that God gave us in Exodus chapter 20, and they said, well, what does it mean? Well, what does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? What does it mean? What did God mean when he said, don't work on the Sabbath? The Bible only gives us a few guidelines for what that means. We, we don't see a whole lot of specific commands and specific instructions on what it means to not work on the Sabbath. We see it in Exodus chapter 16, verse 29, chapter 34, verse 21, chapter 35, verse 3, 
Jeremiah 17, and Nehemiah 13. Those are really the only specific instructions we have about what it means to not work on the Sabbath. So what happened was, eventually a group of Jews got together, a group of Jews got together, and they wrote a set of guidelines for what they said could and could not be done on the Sabbath. So they came up with this list. And this list included 39 things you could not do on the Sabbath. So we don't have time to get into the context of why they developed the 39, but let me just read you that that original list of 39 things you could not do on the Sabbath. Number one, now some of these seem really ancient, but just hold on, we'll get to the present day and how some of this is applied. Number one, that list of 39 things said you could not sow Sowing, meaning, meaning agriculturally. You could not plow. There was no reaping. There was no binding of sheaves. Number five, there was no threshing. Some of these things, like I don't even know what this means. Number six, winnowing. Number seven, selecting. Number eight, grinding. You could not sift. You could not knead. You could not bake. There could be no shearing of wool. There could be no washing of wool. There could be no beating of the wool. There could be no dyeing of the wool. There could be no spinning, no weaving. You couldn't make two loops. You couldn't weave two threads. You couldn't separate two threads. You could not tie. You could not untie. You could not sew two stitches. You could not tear. There was no trapping, no slaughtering, no flaying. I don't even know what flaying means, but you could not do it. There was no salting of meat. There was no curing of a hide. There's no scraping of a hide. There's no cutting of a hide up. You could not write two letters. You could not erase two letters. You could not build. There's no tearing of a building down. There's no extinguishing of a fire. There's no kindling of a fire. There's no hitting with a hammer. And then finally, number 39 says, you could not take an object from the private domain and bring it into the public. You cannot transport an object into the public domain. So in other words, <laughs> in other words, if your house was on fire on the Sabbath day, you could not put the fire out. Now, if it happened on Monday and it's still burning, you could put the fire out on Monday, but you could not put the fire out on Sunday. If your house was on fire on the Sabbath day, you could not go in and take out a few prized possessions, your MacBook, your family photos. If it happened on the Sabbath, you could not go in and lift objects and take them from the private domain to the public domain. Now, you could do that on Tuesday, but you could not do it on the Sabbath day. Also, if you had to work a walk somewhere, the Sabbath law said you could walk a maximum of 3,000 feet, which is about two-thirds of a mile. And so you couldn't walk any uh, longer of a distance than two-thirds of a mile, but you could divide up your walk by meals. What does that mean? In other words, you could walk two-thirds of a mile on the day before the Sabbath, place a meal there, walk home. Then on the Sabbath, you could walk two-thirds of a mile, eat your meal. Then you could have an extra two-thirds of a mile to walk as well, thereby avoiding technically breaking the Sabbath. They also said you could carry a stick, You could carry a stick on the Sabbath, but you could not drag the stick in the ground because it would be considered plowing. Sounds bananas, doesn't it? I'm exhausted. You see how easy the Pharisees began to define sin? They've got all of these these man-made rules. They make up all of these rules in order to protect the Sabbath. Here's the thing. These rules are not written anywhere in scripture. And what's even crazier, the punishment for breaking Sabbath rules. The punishment for breaking Sabbath rules was not a fine. 
The punishment for breaking Sabbath rules was not that you had to go to prison. The punishment for breaking Sabbath rules was not that you had to offer an offering in the temple. The punishment for intentionally breaking Sabbath laws, get this, is punishable by what? Death. Crazy. Crazy. If you intentionally violated the Sabbath, you could be sentenced to death. You're like, okay, that, that's really old and that's really ancient, right, Pastor? That's really, really old and ancient. But listen, it's an even more complex practice today. So there's a Jewish scholar by the name of Yehoshua Neuwirth, a, a modern-day scholar, Yehoshua Neuwirth. He wrote, now get this, a three-volume work. This is the title of it, A Guide to the Practical Observance of the Sabbath. Think about this for a moment. It's a several-volume work on what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. He's interpreting the 39 things into modern-day interpretation. Let me give you a couple of examples of what he says. Cooking in most forms, whether that's boiling, roasting, baking, frying, is forbidden on the Sabbath. Get this, especially when the temperature is raised above 115 degrees. If you left the hot water tap accidentally on, you cannot turn the hot water tap off on the Sabbath. If gas is escaping from your oven, you cannot turn it off. You can turn it off, but not in the normal way. You have to turn the tap of a gas burner off with the back of your hand or with your elbow. Crazy. You cannot squeeze a lemon, he says, into a glass of iced tea. But you can squeeze a lemon onto a piece of fish. Mm. Exodus chapter 34, verse 3 says, you cannot light a fire on the Sabbath which he interprets to mean you can also not turn on electric lights on the Sabbath as well. If you need to turn on the lights, according to Yehoshua New Earth, you need to get an automatic timer. That'll do the job for you. So too, an air conditioner cannot be turned on by a Jew on the Sabbath, although a Gentile can turn it on for you so long as a Jew does not give specific instructions on how to turn the air conditioner on. You cannot bathe with a bar of soap on the Sabbath, according to this Jewish scholar. However, you can bathe with liquid soap. <laughs> if someone is walking on the Sabbath and you discover you're carrying something in your pocket, remember you cannot take something from the private domain to the public domain. You could also not lift on the Sabbath. If, you, if you're walking and you're reminded, I've got something in my pocket, then listen, you have to stop and carrying the object immediately. But at the same time, you cannot reach into your pocket, he says, and simply lift it and put it on the ground. You have to turn the pocket upside down so that the object falls out. Now listen, if the object is valuable and you don't want to leave it there, he says you can ask a Gentile to watch it for you. Listen, but if you want to take the item with you, he says, you cannot carry it. You can carry it, but not in an unusual way. You have to put it in your shoe. You have to tie it around your leg. Listen, think of this. You have to tie it around your leg, put it in your shoe, but you cannot tie a knot or somehow suspend it between your clothing and your body. Wow, it's getting exhausting. What can I do on my day off? <laughs> not much, apparently. Isn't it exhausting? If it seems strange to you, though, this morning, listen, if that seems strange to you, here's the reason why. Because that is the opposite of a life-giving, life-filled, spirit-filled, 
spirit-led, intimate, discerning, living, loving, life-giving relationship with God. It's what we call legalism. This is the context for which Jesus is going to teach us. The Sabbath is the platform he's actually going to teach us about legalism. What is legalism? It's excessive conformity to the law or to a moral code. And legalism describes the Pharisees' approach to the law. In essence, legalism is living out of devotion to the law, not out of love for God and for people. That's in essence what legalism is. I'm living out of devotion to some sort of law or moral code. I'm not living out of devotion and love for God and for other people. And so legalism happens when people take the scriptures and they add to the scriptures. They believe, you know what? God gave us rules, but he didn't give us enough. He didn't really explain those rules enough. The rules that he gave us were not sufficient. But Jesus comes on to the scene. And Jesus brings us new wine. Remember last week? Jesus brings us a new message. And here in Luke chapter six, we we see a a new understanding of what Jesus means by the Sabbath. The Sabbath was never intended to be. It was never intended to be this, this legalistic burden. And so as Jesus and his disciples are walking along, So walking along here in Luke chapter six, they're they're probably headed to the synagogue. They're gonna be teaching in the synagogue. Matthew chapter 12 is a parallel passage to Luke chapter six. Matthew chapter 12 tells us that the disciples were hungry. The disciples were hungry, and so they picked some of the grain and, and from a nearby field, and they actually ate the grain. So according to Jewish law, the disciples broke the prohibition in at least four areas, to harvest, to thresh, to winnow, and to prepare grain on the Sabbath. And so all of the Pharisees see Jesus' disciples breaking the Sabbath, and they gasp. <gasps> And this is the controversy in Luke chapter six. They cannot believe that Jesus' disciples had blasphemed the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, they think, well, you know what? It's our responsibility to correct Jesus. (laughs) And so because Jesus knows they've twisted and they've turned this law that he intended to be good and they use scripture to do so, Jesus then replies with scripture. Look at verse three. Verse three says, and Jesus answered them. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Verse four, he entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawfully only for a priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, you know what, if you're so interested in the law, if you're so interested in the scriptures, let me remind you of 1 Samuel chapter 21. You remember 1 Samuel chapter 21. You know the scriptures so well, Pharisees. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, David and his companions are running literally for their life away from Saul. They've been running for three days. They're in a town called Nob. They go to a priest named Ahimelech and they say, we are 
starving. Do you have anything to eat? And the priest, Ahimelech, says to David and his companions, well, the only thing we have to eat here is 12 loaves of bread. The Old Testament called it the show bread. It was actually placed in the Holy of Holies within the temple. And what happened was every seven days on the Sabbath, that bread was removed and only the priest could eat the show bread. And then a new set of bread was placed. But in this context, the priest gives David the show bread and he and his companions eat. What was the point? Jesus tells them, God is more concerned with human needs than protecting religious rules. God is more concerned with meeting human needs than protecting religious rules. In essence, Jesus is saying, I'm more concerned. I'm way more concerned. My law was never intended to exclude people from basic needs like eating. And then Jesus totally changes the game. He, he, he lays the trump card on the table. And he says in verse five, then Jesus said to them, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I know about the Sabbath. I created it. Hello. I know of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was intended to be a day of rest. But you made it a day about working to keep rules. In essence, Jesus says him, the Sabbath is not this difficult. The Sabbath is not as hard as you've made it to be. It should never be this much work. If you have to work hard to keep the Sabbath, then you've never understood the point. It's a, it's a day, it was intended to be a day of rest. And Pharisees, it cannot be much rest if you cannot even feed yourself. It cannot be much rest if all you can think about, oh my gosh, can I do this or can I not do this? You've made this day way too difficult. It was never intended to be this hard. You're being legalistic with your rules. And so it's easy to read read the New Testament. It's easy to read the New Testament and look at the Pharisees and knock on the Pharisees. They set themselves up really well to be knocked off, right? They set themselves really well to be knocked off. But what does it mean for us? What does this mean for us? Here's what I believe it means for us today. I believe it's easier to follow rules than it is to love God and to love people. I believe it's easier to follow rules than it is to love God and to love people. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said the default mode of the heart is religion. Legalism is timeless. It's not just a phenomenon in Jesus' day. It wasn't just this phenomenon we saw in the Old Testament. It was just a phenomenon by a group of really religious people. Legalism is timeless. It exists today. Pastor and author Chuck Swindell, uh, Swindoll wrote in a book called Grace Awakening. He tells a story about some overseas missionaries who have moved from the U.S. to overseas, and the missionaries begin to crave peanut butter. And I, I can identify with their craving. I crave Waffle House. If you're from the South, say amen, all right? Uh, amen. Thank you. Listen to all you Southerners. And they're overseas, and they're craving peanut butter. So they write to their friends back in the U.S., and they say, hey, we're really craving peanut butter. Is there any way you could possibly send us some peanut butter? 
And Chuck Swindoll tells the story that it just so happened there were other missionaries in the same town and they heard what the missionaries had done who were craving peanut butter and they thought it was unspiritual for these missionaries to crave peanut butter. Why? Because when you surrendered your life to Jesus and to his mission, you should take up your cross and not crave peanut butter. You should not crave the luxuries of the United States. You should leave peanut butter behind. And Chuck Swindoll says they probably thought their craving and their wanting for peanut butter was akin to Lot's wife who looked behind her shoulder at Sodom and Gomorrah and everything she left. You know, legalism is timeless. We still experience it today. And you've seen it in probably a, a, a million different ways. I remember when I was a kid, I remember when I was a kid, I had people in the church that we grew up in, and they said, you cannot ride your go-kart on Sunday because it's not restful. (laughs) You cannot ride your go-kart on Sunday because it's not restful. You've probably been told you need to pray over every meal. But think about this. Think about this. Then you go, then you go to a Mexican restaurant and the chips and salsa shows up, right? And now there's a debate. Do we pray over the chips and salsa because it came before the primary meal? Think about it. My mom and aunt are coming into town next month, and my aunt emailed me this week, and she said to me, she emailed, she said very kind of, kind of jokingly, I, think she, I hope she's joking, she said, hey, preacher, do you have playing cards, <laughs> or should we bring our own? Is it okay for us to play cards? Maybe you've been told by someone that you shouldn't celebrate Christmas or you shouldn't celebrate Christmas with a decorated tree or you shouldn't, or you shouldn't hide eggs or you shouldn't decorate eggs or you shouldn't celebrate with an Easter basket or you shouldn't read Harry Potter or listen to Van Halen or you can't have a tattoo. <laughs> have you ever heard anybody say those things? Eventually, some of these laws begin to sound a bit crazy and it's this type of legalistic influence that Jesus had his harshest words for. You know, when you read Jesus' response to the Pharisees, he's never subtle. Jesus is never kind to the Pharisees. Paul was the same way. He wrote a book called Galatians. He wrote it to the church in Galatia, and he wrote it solely to combat legalism in their church. Do you know why? Because it's easier to follow rules than it is to love God and to love people. And we see it still today. May I ask you a question this morning? Do you love your religion more than you love the God of your religion? I would imagine most of us would say yes. In 2019, especially in Los Angeles, we would say, yes, I do not love religion. I want to love the God of religion. Religion is not about rules. I don't like anything that binds me or constricts me. But the question is, but do you live that way? Because sometimes we have a theological belief that practically never works itself out in our lives. So can I ask you in another way, is there something deep down within you, in your soul, that's convinced you that rule keeping is the way to favor with God? Just something deep down within you that's convinced you that if you just keep rules, You can have favor and acceptance with God. Here's where I see it play out so frequently. Go to any funeral. I'm surprised how many people have never been to a funeral. Oftentimes if I do a funeral for someone who's not religious or has never gone to church, has no appearance of religion or faith or any such things, I always hear these things being said at funerals like that. Well, Jimmy was a good person. Jimmy was a good person. Jimmy did a lot of good things. 
Jimmy cared so much about other people. Jimmy is in heaven, smiling down on us. Heaven gained another angel today in Jimmy. You say, what's wrong with that, Pastor Matt? Well, what's wrong with that is that people don't go to heaven because they obeyed all the rules. People don't go to heaven because they did more good than they did bad. Is there something deep down within you that's convinced your soul that if I would just keep the rules, I can gain God's favor, I can gain God's acceptance. Most of us would say, no, I don't wanna live by religion, I don't wanna live by rules, but practically, so often, we do the exact opposite. You can love the rules, you can obey the rules and still have God say this to you. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Woe to you, hypocrite. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. On the outside, you appear to be righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You understand the law was never meant. I mean, the Old Testament law, what you think about morality, it was never meant to make you perfect. The Old Testament was never written, all of these laws, the Ten Commandments were not written to make you perfect. The law is simply a reminder that I'm insufficient to reach the bar of perfection. That's exactly what Paul said in Galatians chapter three as he's addressing the legalism happening in the church in Galatia. Listen to what he says. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. Our tutor, I had a tutor in ninth grade. I was failing pre-algebra, miserably failing pre-algebra. I was failing pre-algebra. My mom said, you need a tutor or you're not gonna graduate high school. And so she got me a tutor every day after high school. He tutored me and led me from a 58 in pre-algebra to a B in pre-algebra. Paul says the law has become our tutor. For what? What's it leading us to? It's leading us to Christ. The law is leading us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The gospel tells us, the gospel tells us that Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. He's our perfection in our place. And so therefore, our perfection, our standing, our favor with God can never come simply from our ability to fulfill the law, our ability to be more good than more bad. The Old Testament was never intended to be the standard, listen to me, by which we gain favor and acceptance with God. I want you to hear that this morning. The Old Testament was never written so that you're like, if I just do these good things and somehow the great account reconciles my account, more good, it was never intended to be the standard by which you gain favor and righteousness. What was it then? It was the standard by which Jesus attained. And it's a reminder that perfection in morality, perfection in keeping the law is impossible. We can't be perfect. Listen to this though, but God is. We can't be perfect, but God is, and he alone can stand in our place. And church, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. He stood in our place. He perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus was perfectly sinless. 
Listen to what God said about his own son when Jesus came onto the screen. The scene, God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God looked down at Jesus, perfectly sinless, perfectly righteous. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Can I say to you today that God is not pleased with you today? God, God is, is pleased with you not because you did more good than you did bad this week. God is not pleased with you because you did more good than you did bad this week. God is pleased with you. Why? Because Jesus took your place and he vouched for you. And so sometimes as Christians, we begin to believe this lie though. As Christians, we begin to believe this lie that I, I'm not pleasing to God for whatever reason, season of life or whatever you're in. And as a Christian, I begin to believe I'm, I, I'm not pleasing to God. You know what happens when you believe that lie as a Christian? When you believe you're not pleasing to God, you know what you do? You know what's inherent in all of us? We naturally gravitate towards rules. We naturally gravitate towards religion. So we try more and we do more and we lie less and we try to become more faithful and more rigid and the enemy of God wants to use that against you today. Why? He wants to use it against you today and he wants to pile that guilt on top of you and to continue to remind you that you will never be enough. Now listen to me, you never will be enough. You never will be enough. But Jesus is. And as a Christian, I don't have to look at me never being enough. I have to look at Jesus because he stood in my place and he vouched for me. And some of us allow the enemy to pile this guilt on top of us. You're never going to be enough. You're never going to be enough. You need to keep more rules. You need to gravitate towards more religion. You need to lie less. Be faithful more. Be more religious. Be more rigid in your life. But when you live a life opposite of that, what do you mean? But when you live this life that, that's a life from the heart that knows and, and the heart is convinced that God is well pleased with me. Why? Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. Guess what happens then? Then and only then do you find freedom. By the way, freedom that the Pharisees could never find. A life that's lived from a heart that believes and is convinced that I'm well pleased with God and to God. Why? Because of Jesus. Their religion was in their ability to keep their rules. Their religion, let me say that again, was in their ability to keep their rules. Jesus' message is all about his ability to keep the rules and our trust in him for doing so. Their religion is about their rules. Jesus says, my message is about me keeping the rules and your trust in me for doing so. What does that mean? It means that Christianity is an inside-out message means that Christianity is an inside-out message. What do you mean by that? I mean that faith is worked out of a heart. It's worked out of our hearts, not what's done with our hands. We so get this confused. Our faith is worked what, from what comes out of our hearts, not what's done with our hands. Let me explain that to you. For example, when you think about that pregnant teenage girl 
You think about that person who's trapped in sexual sin. You think about that drug addict. You think about that family who's struggling. You think about that marriage that's disintegrating. You think about that person who's struggling with pornography. You think about that person who's struggling with materialism and greed and lying and stealing and overeating. When you think about those people and somebody else is struggling with their marriage or their job or their kids, we tend to sit back and say, (laughs) well, if they had just done this with their kids, well, if he had stayed home more, she wouldn't have cheated on him. If they had just gone to this marriage conference, this would have never happened. But you see, an inside-out faith, an inside-out faith fights that sort of legalism It looks at the heart and it says, why did I just think that very thing? Why did I just think that very thought? Why did I just make that judgment? What is it in my heart that needs to be massaged out and tuned out? Why am I so callous? Am I not understanding the depths of Christ's love for me? Am I not understanding the depths of my own sin? Do I take for granted my own sinfulness? Or do I just think like a Pharisee? Well, thank God I'm not like that man who cheated on his wife. Those statements, that type of living is an indication, it's an affirmation of this legalistic view that we have towards life. It's also an indication It's also an indication of believing that God's favor rests on me because I didn't do that. Legalism not only affects the way you perceive your relationship with God, it also affects the way you treat others. Legalists get caught up in political debates and theological debates and we focus on the issues, completely ignoring the people who are in need. So how do we fight legalism, Pastor Matt? Can I give you two things and I'll be done? How do we fight legalism? Well, let me say first to you, it must start with understanding the scriptures. I don't just mean a Bible verse. God so loved the world. I can do all things through Christ. I don't just mean knowing Bible verses. You understand legalists have Bible verses too. Legalists take Bible verses out of context. They, they, they misunderstand scripture. They incorrectly apply scripture. And that's why we see Jesus showing up here in Luke chapter six, and he's speaking to the Pharisees about how they've misunderstood scripture. And so to avoid legalism, we have to rightly divide the scriptures. Rightly apply the scriptures. You say, how do I do that? I'd love to give you a book recommendation by a very godly woman, a very simple book. The book is called How to Study Your Bible by Kay Arthur. Let me just remind you this morning, in order to avoid legalism, the Bible must be the loudest voice in our life, it must be applied correctly, divided correctly. Number two, trust in Jesus, not in rules. Trust in Jesus, not in rules. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23 that legalists have this ability to tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. But those same legalists are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. 
Jesus then speaks to those who have been bound up by religious laws and rules in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And listen to his word, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The weary and the burden are the people who have had laws and rules piled up on their shoulders. Are you weary this morning from trying to be good enough? Are you weary this morning from trying to keep all the rules? Jesus says, come to me. Be reminded this morning that those burdens were put on my shoulders on the cross. Don't let your inability this morning to keep the rules strap you down with guilt and fear. Put your trust in Christ and what he's done for you today. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray for us this morning. I want to close us out this morning. I believe the cultivation of an intimate walk with God is this work that happens from the inside out. It's not the outside in. Have you trusted this morning in some sort of goodness to make you right with God? You trusted in some sort of form of rules and religion? Something inside of you has caused you to believe and forced you to believe and led you to believe that God looks on me with favor because I did or did not. I want to call you away from legalism today and religion. And I want to call you to trust in Jesus who did and did not in your place, on your behalf. And today he can vouch for you. Have you trusted him for salvation? Have you ever been saved? Have you ever given your life to Jesus? Said, Jesus, I acknowledge today I don't add up. I have and I have not, and it's just not working. Today, God, I acknowledge that my sin has offended you. Jesus, today, I trust in you, Jesus, in my place to vouch for me. If you've never trusted your life to Jesus, there's nothing magical and mystical about it. We don't make you stand on a stage, make you say anything you don't want to say. Simply ask you to have a moment with the Lord, acknowledge your sin, ask him to forgive you of your sin, turn from your sin, walk with God. If you'd like to know more about that this morning, have two prayer counselors down front, Marco and Sarah, my right, your left. After the service, we'd love for you to come down and just ask them, how can I know more about a relationship with God? We'd love to invite you to receive Jesus into your life, to trust in him, not in rules, not in religion, not in do's and not in don'ts this morning. God, we love you. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. God, I pray that it will be a powerful word for us this week, Lord. Be reminded to look to you to live from the inside out, not the outside in. It's so unnatural, God, to live from the outside in. I cultivate in us a heart that lives from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen.